Welcome, everybody, and thank you for coming out to another Skybrook Spaces. I'm here with Rick Farman. He is somebody, if you are not aware, that is a legend in the music industry. He's the founder of Superfly, which is functionally the company that created the American uh, festival, and, and in many ways, like it, that really redefined what that is. Um, as a person, he's somebody that I very much admire, it, where he's probably one of the best people in the world at understanding community, culture, and scale. When you think about what it takes to build a festival that drives tens or hundreds of thousands of people year in and year out and does it well, that that's something that I think is probably one of the most challenging things in the world to do, where you have to be completely tuned in to the user experience, but also tuned into the cultural moment of what those users are going to want to be. So anyways, Rick, I'd love to have you introduce yourself. You could do it much more eloquently than I can, and love to hear kind of a little bit uh, just about your background and where, how you got to where you are today. Thanks, Josh. Uh, appreciate the introduction and uh, excited to be here and connect with uh, the Skybrook community. Um, and so we started producing events uh, while we were in college, um, almost uh, a little bit over 25 years ago. And um, like you said, um, you know, it re really was about um, bringing together of community. It's always been a thread of uh, what we do and main driving force is bringing community together around culture and entertainment. And uh, we started doing this uh, in New Orleans. Um, I went to Tulane. And uh, for those of you who have never been to New Orleans, I uh, highly recommend getting there if you're interested in entertainment and culture and the convergence of that stuff, because it manifests there in a really authentic like way that is a part of life, not just um, something you do casually, but something that is really in, in the fabric of your being. And um, that that environment was kind of the initial spark for uh, me and my other uh, co-founders at Superfly to um, start creating events and experiences that um, we, we thought would be meaningful for people. Uh, started with just concerts, uh, then quickly moved into sort of special events, uh, particularly around the Mardi Gras and Jazz Fest time down there. And uh, that was the kind of initial uh, seed that got us thinking about festivals. Um, we were really inspired by uh, New Orleans Jazz and Heritage Festival, um, um, a lot of the big fish festivals that were happening around the country at the time, and, and in particular, the uh, big European festivals. Um, and uh, that, that was sort of the, uh, in a lot of ways, the things that led us to uh, creating Bonnaroo, uh, the Bonnaroo Music and Arts Festival, which is one of the largest uh, music and camping festivals in the world. Um, for those of you who don't know, Bonnaroo is held on a 700-acre farm uh, about 60 miles south of Nashville. Um, and it, it's really a, a full-blown, immersive world of its own. Um, it, it's a place where people really go and 
um, you know, kind of transform for a weekend into, um, you know, people who are just consuming uh, culture and, and music and art and, and really building uh, incredible friendships and relationships. Um, and uh, th- that event, um, you know, is, is really all encompassing because everybody lives there uh, on the farm uh, for those four days. Um, we went on to create many other festivals from there. Uh, the one that um, is, is probably most, we're most known for uh, other than Bonnaroo is the Outside Lands Music Festival that happens in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park. We're just about to have our 15th year of that. Um, we do about 225,000 people over the three days. Um, and that festival is interesting in that it's really um, a uh, display of, San Francisco and Bay Area culture. Um, one of the hallmarks of it is it really it was pioneering and being one of the first gourmet festivals where um, we serve over 200 different local food items, uh, a couple hundred different types of wine, 50 different types of beer. And we have the only, uh, globally, the only legal sales and consumption of cannabis at a major festival. Um, and so that that event uh, does as well have all you know huge you know music names and uh, you know lots of different types of art, um, but at its essence, it's really about the bringing together of the uh, San Francisco and Bay Area culture. Um, so that that's sort of one thing that Superfly does. Um, we we produce festivals, we create our own experiences, and then we kind of do two other things. We also have a, a marketing agency um, that really um, creates experiences for brands, media companies that are looking to connect with consumers in, in really unique and authentic ways. And um, that's a really fun part of our business and something that kind of came out of us creating festivals, wanting to make sure that the brand partnerships that we had were really thoughtful. We kind of started with a very basic concept, which is, you know, if a brand was going to be part of one of our events, um, it, 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 they really needed to sh- to provide some value to the fan, you know, not just some advertising slap somewhere, but something that they uh, could do that would ingratiate them and and connect them to the community. So the fan felt that they were getting some benefit. And so we were at the early edge of experiential marketing with that. And we've created a whole practice around that, that that does all sorts of work for lots of top tier companies. And then the third thing we do is we license uh, IP intellectual property to create experiences. Um, And, um, Right now, uh, we've licensed a whole bunch of different film and TV IP and some music IP. We have a uh, Harry Potter experience, a Friends experience, and a Prince experience, Um, all that go to different markets for 60, 90 days and really immerse people in, in that intellectual property. Um, so that, that's sort of the, the general, um, what Superfly does. Um, one sort of very new and exciting piece of this and the part that really connects me to, to you, Josh, and, and this community is that we've also started a, another sub company called Super, 
Um, and Super's focus is really uh, providing a lot of what Superfly has done over these years, but directly focused on uh, Web3 communities. Um, so we're doing two things there. We're building some of our own communities, and then we're also um, helping to support other communities and creating experiences. And the first project um, that we've launched out of that is uh, a project called Superfest. Uh, and the idea behind that is creating a festival community, a community of people who go to festivals, who want to be involved in creating unique experiences as a community. Um, and, um, you know, Josh, that's something I know, you know, where we connected and you supported, which we really appreciate. And, uh, um, you know, we're, we're really thrilled about the opportunities at large in, in Web3 and, and how some of these new paradigms can help us push our mission of uh, creating unique experiences and spreading positivity and joy through that. Um, so ha happy to jump more into that or, or take this wherever you want to go. Yeah. One of the things, you know, learning about you that I was really impressed with, it was you have this quote where you're saying that basically everything that you do for a festival is related to bringing value to the fans and the audience. And I kind of it took away two main things that I thought were, in my opinion, like big parts of why I admire what you're doing. One was it, that your top tier priority was experience. And the second one was that you were building this for yourself almost like when, when you were younger, if I remember correctly, like you and three other founders, it created this, you asked each other how much you need for rent or student loans and then paid the minimum, but everything was focused on the user experience. What at such a young age gave you that insight? Because to me, that's like everything for success. What, what made you realize that so young? I, I think it was very like, directly situational of there were things that we all uh, um, wanted to see happen that weren't happening. So it, it, it was almost, I don't want to say selfish because that's probably the wrong word, but in a way it was, you know, trying to fulfill, uh, you know, entertainment um, opportunities for ourselves that we didn't have. It started with just like certain types of bands that weren't coming to new Orleans and that we were like, Hey, we want to see these bands. We want to see these bands at our favorite venues. So let's be a part of making that happen. And then, you know, as we progressed into the festival thing, um, it was really, we, we felt that there was a need in America for a large scale camping festival. Um, and for various reasons, industry wise, uh, that really wasn't happening. There wasn't a national camping festival experience. And, you know, I, I often say like we, for real, we would have been the first people to buy tickets to Bonnaroo if somebody else had done it. And so I, I think as people think about just any kind of product development, you've got to kind of start with yourself. And if it's not yourself, there needs to be somebody on your team adjacent to you who's like really connected to whatever, you know, community or culture you're, you're looking to, um, you know, create for. Um, you know, now that I'm a bit older and I'm not able to, you know, have family and all that kind of stuff and I'm, I'm not, you know, as, as ear to the ground anymore, one of the things that, you know, we, we really try and cultivate at Superfly is bringing in a team of people and empowering them, um, you know, who, you know, those people that are 
closer to culture and that are, you know, living and breathing it. And one of the things I'm most proud about with our super team is, is exactly that. We've got a bunch of people who um, really live and breathe this, the stuff that we're going after. Um, but ultimately, you know, you, sh- you know, anybody who's creating needs to get that kind of creative feedback that loop of inspiration has to come from something really personal um so i you know it's really not much more complicated than that it's really if if you can program something for yourself and you can see that there's a thing that like is underserved like oh i wish that was happening then go out and make that happen because the chance that there are a lot of other people who feel the same way that you do is is pretty strong most of the time when, when you identified that, it, the thing that struck me as really interesting is I, I think having been a young founder myself and having founded different companies, I think that identifying that is one thing, but you had the vision to reach out to the people at Fish, if I remember correctly, and to get their help at some level. I don't know the details on that, but I'd love to hear kind of like how you did that outreach and how you built that relationship. Because to me, uh, you know, that, that's one of the kind of the foundations of Skybrook is I, I want to be able to help other founders. I want to bring people in. I hope our community is a huge value add. It's in my mind, a long-term timeline, but how did you make that outreach and build that relationship so early on? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, it was a build. It started with us, you know, doing all the concerts we were doing in New Orleans and starting to build relationships in the industry kind of brick by brick, piece by piece. Um, the one thing that was kind of a nexus there is, is an interesting part of our history is that um, we started producing these concerts called Super Jams. And the idea behind the Super Jams was um, that we wanted to bring players from different bands together for kind of like a one-time only kind of special all-star appearance. Um, and again, this was driven by a, a personal desire to see some of the sort of band leaders from different bands kind of play together and to get out of their normal thing that they do and um, try something different. Um, and so, you know, it was awesome. We, we, we would reach out to these different musicians, whether they were New Orleans musicians, or some national musicians, and what we learned really quickly was all we needed to do was ask. If we asked and created the opportunity for these musicians to try something different and do something different, most of them were game for it. And one of those uh, became a band called Oysterhead. Um, Oysterhead um, was created when um, I reached out to my friend David Lefkowitz, who was at the time the manager of Primus and Les Claypool. And him and I had become really good buddies and we're always geeking out on different music we were listening to. And uh, I rang him up one day and said, hey, would Les Claypool want to you know, do one of these super jams? And he's like, yeah, I think so. Let me call him. And a couple of days later, you know, they called me up and said, hey, Les re- reached out to Trey Anastasio from Fish and he, he wants to do it. He, Les has always wanted to do something with Trey and he's in. 
And at the time, that was a huge deal for us because, you know, Fish was, a, you know, one of our aspirational bands to be working with. And um, it was at a moment in time where they weren't doing a lot. And so just the attention on anything that Trey would do, we, we knew would be huge. A couple of days later, they called me up and said that they had reached out to Stuart Copeland, the drummer from The Police, who's a legendary drummer, um, to also you know, do this show with them. And so within a very short period of time, all of a sudden we were, you know, a part of assembling this kind of historic all-star group. They actually went on to create a record and tour and they still perform today. And that was all just, you know, an, a nexus of me and my friend David Lefkowitz, you know, kind of shooting the shit about cool things we could do. Um, and so it was, it was kind of through that relationship that we, um, got to know the fish camp. And, you know, one of the things that was so impressive about fish early on in their team was that they were just incredibly detail orientated. They were incredibly thoughtful about, um, you know, how they would, you know, do every little part of a production. Um, and so we started to, you know, just learn how they were doing things. And a couple of years later, when the idea for Bonnaroo arose, um, I started uh, asking them questions about how they did stuff for their large camping festivals. And to their credit, they were incredibly gracious in their help. There was various people in their organization, from their manager to their tour manager to uh, you know some of the production people that uh, you know had had built their events, um, who um, you know were, were generous enough to start giving us advice. Uh, I think as they saw that we were looking to do things the right way and that that kind of fan centric, fan first model, which which they were very much. Uh, pioneers of, um, they continued to help us more and more. And they really became part of the foundational team uh, that helped us go from, you know, the, the biggest event we did before Bonnaroo was a 3,000 person theater show, which is you know, comes with a staff when you rent the theater, it's much easier to do. From that to a you know, 70,000 person uh, camping festival. Um, and, and we were in our mid 20s. And so, you know, we didn't have a ton of experience. But the way we were able to do that was by cultivating the relationships with these this experienced team and also having a good balance of knowing, um, you know, where to listen and to really be thoughtful about taking the lead of these experienced people, but still having enough confidence in ourselves. Uh, and, and feeling that we knew what we were, we knew what this audience wanted to also make sure that, you know, we were imposing, you know, those important things that we thought would make an event like this successful on it. It wasn't just follow the, the experienced people. It was create a partnership with them and a balance between the things that, um, you know, they were um, experts in and, and taking our point of view and, and kind of combining those things in a, in a very elegant way. And, you know, I think a lot of it is just having sort of that, that presence of mind, that ability to, um, you know, like kind of not have it be about you and your ego and all that, that kind of stuff, you know, have it really be about a true collaboration. And I, that's been a big secret of, of everything we do ultimately is just really listening and, you know, having thoughtful discussion and debate with people. But at the end of the day, um, really getting out of your own way and, and trying to make those collaborations the best you can. When, 
you're talking about getting out of your own way and, you know, putting your ego aside. The first thing that comes to my mind is you know, something that's pretty rare. You had three co-founders. Is that correct? Yeah. Uh, how did you, one, put your ego aside in a larger group? Because that's an anomaly in, you know, in the startup world. It's, it's pretty rare to have more than two or three. I mean, like maybe Airbnb had you know, three co-founders. But it, one, uh, that piece. And then the second piece of the question is... How did you delineate tasks so that you could be in charge of one thing or did you do that? So I'd love to hear kind of your recipe for a larger founding team. Yeah, well, I think the underlying starting place is like, you know, friendship, right? Are you developing true friendship and relationships um, with people that you're in business with and, and working towards common goals? And for us, you know, in a lot of ways, it started with music and the passion for music and going out to see shows together and, um, you know, also having a shared interest in just entrepreneurship and you know as as anybody who's been on the entrepreneur journey knows it, it's it's a difficult one it, it can be a lonely one um and so to have people that you can share in that experience with and that can empathize with your situation and um you know that you can lean on is uh you know really a, a beautiful thing if 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 you can create that level of friendship and trust um to you know, have that be a healthy thing. And so I think that was just the starting point for us was like, we all were, we all built a friendship um, through doing this work. We all, um, you know, to the second part of your question, sort of leaned into things that we were naturally good at. Um, and, and look, that's not to say there wasn't plenty of, uh, you know, tension and, you know, interests and, and, and feelings about what each of us was doing. We certainly had to wade our way through um, some of the things that, you know, come up when you're working together and, and, and you're, you know, aspirational, motivated people. Of course, you're going to have times where, you know, somebody feels a certain way about one thing or the other or, or wants to be doing more in this area or that area. Um, that all happened. But I think we just, um, you know, again, we would kind of keep coming back to like, why are we doing this? What, what are we trying to achieve? Um, our, our passion for the for the output of the work itself really drove us, um, and and you know we did have different skill sets. We did have things that sort of were complementary and fit well with each other, and and we we always really just tried to lean into that. And, you know, over time, I think particularly as we matured, we, we started to recognize even more and more, this person's really good at sales, this person's really good at operations, this person's, you know, really good at finance, this person's really, you know, all about the creative and, and, and really staying connected to culture and, and just those roles, um, you know, continue to evolve. And I, and I think another piece of this is also respecting that nobody is just one thing. Right. Nobody is just an operations person. Nobody is just a programming person. Nobody is just, uh, you know, a financial person. Nobody is just a creative that, that everybody, um, you know, has a spectrum of things that they're good at and that their their input is meaningful on. And so having really good uh, opportunities for everybody to contribute, but still having clear leadership as it relates to particular areas and tasks was also part of, I think, the, the thing that helped everybody feel good about their contribution at the end of the day. 
that to me is really impactful because it's something I see very frequently almost as a mistake by people that they'll classify somebody as a coder, as an artist, as a, uh, you know, like finance person. But the reality is we're all humans and there, there are different days and times where something might not be your top tier expertise, but you may come across an event where maybe you're a coder and you have a brilliant marketing idea. Maybe you're a marketer and you see something on the finance side that could work. Um, with that, what was kind of your role within the organization? Uh, obviously, you're holding many hats, early stage startup, but was there something that you found that you were most excited or most comfortable or enjoyed the most within that role? Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting, like at the beginning, um, you know, part of my contribution was that I was really very connected to the um, culture and community of where we were programming directionally. I mean, I was a, I was a, you know, music junkie, hippie, long haired freak kind of guy. And, um, you know, and I was, uh, uh, you know, bad musician, but at least I could like hack it out a little bit and get on that level. And, um, you know, I, at the early, really early spark, I, I just, I knew this community and I knew what, what kind of, uh, programming and things would, would light them up. And so, you know, I, that, that's sort of where I was initially coming from, uh, pretty quickly, uh, and, and somewhat, surprisingly to myself, um, I became really interested in the operational part of the business and just the running of the business itself. Uh, just intellectually, it started to really stimulate me about how these things actually come together and how the finances work and, um, you know, kind of how some of the, the particularities of inter interfacing with public and PR and, even some of the legal side of things. Um, I, I come from a family of, of lawyers, uh, you know, I uh, was raised by a wild pack of them. And so, um, you know, some of that sort of, even that intellectual side of how deals come together, um, how you have to create the, the right structures around uh, liability and insurance, all that kind of stuff, um, you know, over the, the early, you know, first bunch of years started to really, um, you know, kind of be my thing. Uh, and, and I, I still was involved in the programming. I still sort of did a lot of things like specialty projects where I would like go to another festival and come back and have an idea. Um, but I kind of became more of the, the operational lead ultimately. Um, and, and now today that's kind of, um, expanded a little bit into sort of just the overall, uh, business development side. You know, I, I love relationships. I love, bringing, um, you know, people together. It's, it's really that that's probably the biggest passion I have in business where I get the most excited is when I meet somebody new and I feel like I could connect that person with somebody else. And there's part of our business that's relevant. And I feel like, you know, that, that, that's really exciting, uh, you know, work for me. Um, and then the last piece I would say is also just 
you know, trying to recognize where things are going from a trend perspective. Um, you know, I, I really love that work too. Um, and, uh, you know, that the whole mix of it, 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 again, has been surprising to me from where I started as somebody who really thought, you know, I was in it uh, mainly because I, I really understood you know, was connected with the audience and was part of the audience to sort of become somebody who, you know, is, is in a lot of ways more focused on the business side um, was uh, definitely a surprising part of my journey. When, when you talk about being raised by a family with a bunch of lawyers, I appreciate that my family is very similar. Was it hard for, to get your family's buy-in to go from, you know, not going the traditional doctor lawyer route and going into a festival or did how did you approach that with your family because i hear it in a lot of young entrepreneurs it's one of the biggest hurdles they're trying to get over is the buy-in or acceptance from family members who've gone more traditional career routes yeah it's interesting um well i think a couple things i was fortunate uh, to have one is that I'm a third child and, uh, both my brother and sister, uh, went to law school and, you know, kind of went down that route. And so in a lot of ways, um, you know, I, I had kind of, a uh, a, a bit of a freer dynamic in that regard. And I, I have three kids and, you know, I, I always tell the youngest, uh, that he, he's got the best spot and I, I don't cut him much slack because of it. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think that, you know, some of those family dynamics, some of the, the, the ways those things play out, I think actually are meaningful. And in, in my situation, I certainly had a lot of leeway, um, because of that. Uh, the other thing is that, um, you know, my grandfather, actually both of my grandfathers were entrepreneurs and um, one of them ended up starting a business that had a legal practice as part of it. Um, but in many ways, um, you know, he, he was uh, very entrepreneurial. Um, and my other grandfather also uh, was in a business with his, his father, my great grandfather. And so that was also a, a very entrepreneurial pursuit. And so, you know, the last piece is I started this so young, you know, we first put on, put on our first set of shows. I was 19. I mean, I think my parents were just happy I was doing something. Um, and, uh, I was very fortunate. I, I, for the very first set of shows, uh, uh, Mardi Gras 1997, where we were actually, you know, producing shows on our own and, and had to put up the capital. Um, I, I went to my parents and said, hey, you know, I want to use some of my bar mitzvah money uh, to, um, you know, put into this. And amazingly, they said yes. I mean, I, I have a lot of uh, deep appreciation for the way they parented at large. But um, part of their thing was like, if kid was passionate about something or wanted to do something, they, they would kind of, um, you know, help, help foster that they were, they were not no people. They were generally yes people. And, um, you know, I'm, I'm very fortunate that um, they, they kind of took that attitude and uh, obviously it was, you know, an, an awesome investment in my life and, and a great, thing that I was able to have a little bit of resources, uh, to be able to start the business. I mean, it was, it wasn't a lot of money. It was a few thousand dollars, but, um, you know, at the end of the day, uh, it, it was, it was a big thing that I was able to, ha you know, be able to do that. I think that's really impressive. I mean, like just, even as a young kid, uh, that that's all the money you have, right? Like you're going all in. It may not be a lot comparatively to what you have today, but that's uh, that's you going all in, your parents being able to see 
that vision and support you, whether it's emotionally or financially, I think the emotional is actually far more important. Um, I know that you've kind of made the transition. You've have you have a long track record with the festivals. What made you decide to go into the Web3? You know, we have a mutual friend, Laz. I know that you're kind of in that. But what was the tipping point where you were saying NFTs and concerts and, you know, building a decentralized concert should be the next wave of my journey? Well, I think the bigger macro thing here is that um, if you look over, um, you know, the time of media and entertainment in a modern sense and its relationship to experiences is a very direct path. Uh, each evolution in, in media technology generally produces a corresponding evolution of um, in real life experience. And, you know, uh, now having done this for over 25 years, I've seen a bunch of different cycles of that. Um, you know, most profoundly right at the beginning, like the, the um, introduction of, of digital music um, and, and sort of what that gave uh, access to in terms of, you know, listening to so many different types of music and not having the same types of gatekeepers. Um, it was a direct correlation between that and people wanting to go to, a, you know, an event that had 100 bands at it, right, rather than a singular concert. Um, and, um, if you look at sort of the next wave of, you know, the development of social media, you know, the early message boards and listservs and things like that, that evolved into the Facebooks and Instagrams, same thing, right? This ability to communicate at large with people who share the same passions as you and organize in that regard. Um, you know, the, the idea of uh, creating media and content, um, you know, as an individual that espouses sort of what's valuable in your life and what you care about and what you're inspired by, you know, that that's the kind of thing where you, you got to get off your butt and get out and do stuff in order to, you know, kind of really live uh, life in that kind of ecosystem. Um, you know, these are, these are trends that have been going on consistently. Um, uh, you know, and another one is really gaming, right? I, I think the way that people are, today, you know, being initiated into entertainment through gaming means they're going to want, you know, things that have uh, similar dynamics in their real world experiences. And so as you kind of get to the Web3 part, um, you know, it, it, it as I start to started to see some of this evolve and this ideas of uh, around community and ownership and co-creation, all of that stuff, um, you know, scratched a really big itch and, and, you know, made me feel like there was a unique opportunity for Superfly in the way that we do things. Um, because, you know, like you said, at the onset of one of our hallmarks has been that we are always a really thinking from the fan perspective. Well, what's more of an ability to think of a, from the fan perspective than actually co-creating with the fans? And this is something we'd, we'd really always wanted to do um, in some capacity. And, um, you know, it, it kind of one of the early sparks was certainly around um, a lot of the crowdfunding platforms that came out like Kickstarter and CrowdSurge and things like that, um, where this idea of sort of pooling resources together from a community and using that 
as the basis to uh, create from um, was was starting to you know become something we would talk about often as an aspirational opportunity at Superfly, um, and and as this sort of we started watching a lot of the dynamics um, evolve around Web three, it felt like okay maybe some of the actual mindset and infrastructure is being built in a way that we can do this for real. Um, as you mentioned, a big part of it is uh, my my you know friendship and relationship with Mike Lazaro. He's one of the great guys of the world, one of, uh, you know, been a huge uh, supporter and mentor, advisor at Superfly and, and a great personal friend of mine. And, um, you know, he, Mike, is somebody who, you know, really understands uh, deeply the entrepreneurial journey in, in the technology space and it, it understands, um, you know, the how to, how to work within that ecosystem in incredibly productive ways and thoughtful ways. And so we started to, you know, wrap a lot with him about what he was seeing. Um, we also started to make some personal investments in some companies that were in Web3 and started to learn a little bit about how things were working. And um, as Mike and I were having one of our, you know, chop it up sessions, brainstorm sessions, we started to think about how this could apply to the festival space. And you know, one of the things that you know kind of quickly evolved from that is just that there's so much community around festivals. People feel so connected and passionate to that activity. Um, what, what an opportunity to sort of, um, cultivate that in a different way and maybe reverse engineer how, uh, experiences are built. Um, you know, so much uh, of the building of, of experiences done behind the curtain. And, you know, I, I, I think in some ways there's a lot of really good reasons for that, but, you know, there's another side to it, which is, um, and sort of there's a little bit of a disconnect um, at times between producers and artists and fans. And part of that disconnect also creates sometimes a little bit of a lack of empathy and a, and a, and a real uh, transactional mindset. And that's one of the things I'm really hoping to achieve with what we're doing with uh, Superfest is to sort of get it out a little bit of the transactional mindset um, and, and, you know, kind of let people behind the curtain a little bit. And so that they can understand, um, you know, how creation like this works with the idea that hopefully, you know, that whole connection with people can create better ideas or more unique ideas or new innovative ideas that, that wouldn't have happened if you didn't have the openness of that, that kind of relationship and dialogue. That's really impressive to kind of think about. And from my mindset, I like the idea of understanding where your blind spots are, right? Like if you get too entrenched on one side or the other, I think that you lose the ability to provide that experiential side. I, I always feel like you want to be shoulder to shoulder, same side of the table rather than against each other. If it's okay with you, I'd love to uh, invite a few people up maybe ask you a few questions. I know a lot of people are interested uh, in being able to ask you things about what you've done or their accomplishments. Uh, is that okay with you, Rick? Yeah, go right ahead. Awesome. Sure. I uh, see so we got Lucky up on stage. We'll start with him. If uh, someone else has a question, we'll probably field one or two. Um, so just go ahead and put your hand up, but Lucky, we'll go with you. Hey, GM Josh, GM Rick, uh, I do have a question, but I want to share a, a short story real quick because this is bringing a lot of things full circle for me. 
Um, when you launched Bonnaroo, I was 15 years old. I had a Yahoo email address and I got that first email before you sold out and you guys sold out super quick. At the time, I had a very monochromatic taste in music. And as a result, and, and I never made it to that festival because I was so young. My parents were very conservative and there's no chance they were going to let me run down to Tennessee for, for a week. And from there sprouted actually um, a lot of skills and a lot of background that I now carry today. I remember being exposed to bands that I never heard of. Carl Denson's Tiny Universe, Mo, John Butler Trio, uh, Les Claypool, Buckethead. I mean, I could, I could go on. And uh, I would actually later that year go on to start photographing concerts. First band I ever reached out to was Sting. I talked to the Sting's manager until he uh, relented and finally put me on a guest list. And I ended up going to a bunch of music festivals after that. Um, I think Coachella is what it is today because of what you built. And the truly impressive part is that you did all of that without YouTube, without Instagram, without TikTok, without influencers. Like, it's just a mind-blowing trip to sit here and, and recount a lot of these memories. To bring it even fuller circle, I'm talking to you right now from Perth, Western Australia, where I'm actually working on a law degree, uh, and firmly because I'm a lifelong entrepreneur, and I wanted to be able to have the tools to be able to think like a lawyer and to be able to fight my way out of tough spots and just have a little bit more inside knowledge. So that was really interesting to hear that your family background is like that. Um, my question to you is, you know, obviously in the beginning you were bootstrapping things and kind of rolling that money forward. At a certain point, you had to have grown to needing outside capital. Could you maybe like talk about a little bit about who you were going to for money, like how you were navigating these spaces and rapidly expanding, or was it like purely just rolling in more profits and just kind of navigating that space of, keeping so many moving pieces and relationships afloat all at once and keeping that going in a world where you did not have the resources that we have today. And I really appreciate hearing your story and, and sharing the stage with you today. Yeah. Thanks, Lucky Man. That, that was awesome. Appreciate that uh, connection to Bonnaroo and, and what it provided you. It's always a great fuel for what we do to hear those stories. Um, so, yeah, up until the creation of Bonnaroo, um, we were entirely self-funded. And as Josh mentioned before, you know, we, we were really operating in a model of like, let's just only take out of the business exactly what we need to live and no more, no less, like push it all forward. Um, once we got to the Bonnaroo idea and vision, we, we knew we needed to have some outside capital. And, um, you know, we got kind of in a way like our first lesson in strategic capital. Um, you know, we, we didn't know a lot of people with money at the time. And so it was one of these things where we had to, um, you know, really kind of, you know, dig deep and think about how we were going to do this. Um, and you know, I think our initial uh, network was people that were in the industry. Um, so, you know, we, we were very fortunate that as we kind of went around to this community of people that we knew that were, you know, more uh, mature 
players in the space um, that we landed on one person in particular, a guy by the name of Corin Capshaw, who runs uh, Red Light Management, one of the largest uh, management companies in the world. And um, at the time, uh, you know, was kind of really known for managing the Dave Matthews Band. Um, he had also built an interesting uh, company called Music Today that was like a ticketing and um, fan club merchandise business, um, really kind of forward thinking uh, business um, that, that he had created. And um, because his background was actually similar in that he was really inspired by the Grateful Dead and he was very aware of sort of what the whole element of fan communities were about. And obviously with, with the work with uh, managing the Dave Matthews band and their community kind of understood a lot of uh, ultimately what we were saying when our proposition was, Hey, we want to bring a whole bunch of these bands together that, you know, have these strong uh, fan communities and kind of put them in one place at one time. He understood the idea, you know, from the get go. And you know, at the time we, we were trying to pass the hat. We were trying to go around, Hey, you give us a little bit of money. You give us a little amount of money. And as we were doing that, um, I, I think I really started to realize that the only way this is going to happen is if we find that one person that can write the check. Uh, and that was corn. And we were, we were lucky because, you know, he was an entrepreneur. We could, you know, have sort of those conversations directly one-on-one. -on -one. He wasn't part of some big company or, you know, some, um, financial, uh, you know, shop that had a, a you know, method or a particular game plan. He was just an entrepreneur who, you know, wanted to in, invest in ideas and synergistic businesses. And, um, you know, he, he, he was, you know, a, a couple generations above us. And so he had, had had enough success and experience um, to be able to uh, you know, support us. Now, what was great about it is that it really helped us legitimize what we were doing. I mean, again, we were a very small company. We were a bunch of guys in our early 20s and we had some relationships in the industry, but, you know, they were around booking small clubs and theaters, not producing something of this level. Um, and so he helped legitimize in a lot of ways um, what we were doing. You know, the rest of the industry, when when they knew that Corin was our backer, they felt comfortable that they knew we had the financial resources and some of the, the intellectual guidance to be able to deliver on what we were telling people was our vision and what we were going to do. Um, and so that was, that was really fortunate. Um, over the years, uh, we've, we've cultivated a variety of different capital partners. Um, sometimes we will source a capital partner for a particular particular project. We do have direct investors into Superfly. And, um, you know, that's been a big, uh, you know, part of the journey of figuring out um, how to cultivate those sources, how to maintain those relationships and extend those relationships actually has become a central part of my job is to um, figure out where we're going to get the fuel for the things that we want to build and do and, and how we navigate the company through those relationships. And it's, it's a, a very, um, you know, dynamic part 
of the business. It, 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 you have to be really thoughtful and, and uh, deliberate about how you engage in a lot of those uh, relationships and the maintenance and cultivation of them. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it's a fun part of it, too, because, again, it, it, it ultimately does come back to relationships. You know, people give capital to people that they f- feel comfortable with, that they feel can uh, deliver them. You hear it all the time in the investment world. Most of the time you're investing in a person, not just an idea or a product. You're investing in the people um, because it always takes people to make any business actually successful. Um, yes, you can have a great idea. There's plenty of great ideas out there. But if you can't deliver and execute on those things, then the idea is not worth anything. And so, um, you know, at the end of the day, you know, that whole business of capital and, and, and the relationship it has to, um, businesses is, is about relationships. Um, one of the things I've also tried to, um, do is get on the other side of that. So, you know, fortunately we've had some liquidity here where we have resources to invest in other businesses. And along with my other partners, um, we've, we've, uh, do invest in, in other companies. And a, a big reason for that is uh, to build relationships with other entrepreneurs and to understand what it's like to be on the other side, to have that perspective. Of, you know, when you've put your money into uh, your hard earned money into another person's hands, how do you feel about that relationship? And so, you know, gaining perspective, gaining insights um, is, is a key part of um, becoming a mature and, and thoughtful business person, you know, it, lucky it's also why, uh, you know, the, the lawyer mindset is actually such an interesting one because you, you really get trained on how to look from different perspectives and, and how to see all things at the same time. You always have to be thinking about what the other side is thinking and put yourself in their shoes. And so by actually doing that, by actually putting yourself in other, the, the other side of the coin shoes, you gain knowledge and, and a certain amount of wisdom around that. Thank you so much. I, I typically ask questions of people and get like a broad, like, you know, statement. And that was uh, more detailed than what I usually get. And I know exactly who Corin Capshaw is, Red Light Entertainment, kind of studied the guy for years. And that's a very cool story. And I, I really appreciate it. That, that's awesome. I, I Such a thoughtful insight. Um, I want to pass it off to Literati. Hey, what, what's your question today? Hey, uh, good morning, Josh. Uh, it's super nice to hear uh, Rick's experience in the music industry and, and realize actually how the culture and the community building uh, intersect. And especially, uh, uh, I think this is very interesting for, for the Web3. So I, I couldn't um, uh, not ask uh, with this opportunity uh, about uh, his impressions on the future of the music events on Web3, I know he has a lot of plans, uh, but uh, we see different models, uh, models that, uh, you know, companies like uh, uh, you have Lyrical Lemonade and Rolling Loud creating successful NFT projects for, you know, uh, make this the, a loyal fan base stronger, spreading the culture and uh, bringing more people in, the, in real life events. But on the other side, we also uh, see a maybe a, a longer term view of uh, digital uh, events, you know, uh, virtual concerts. We, we all remember uh, how successful was uh, 
the experience with the Travis Scott on Fortnite, probably one of the most viewed YouTube music videos in history. Um, and uh, of course, with the evolution of uh, blockchain technology and metaverses, bring the ability to have more people online, more users, like thousands and thousands of people simultaneously uh, uh, connected to a metaverse. How do you see what's the winning model? Is the bringing more people uh, on in in real life through a you know a loyalty membership, or to focus on creating something for virtual uh, concerts? Um, and when do you think this is going to be a big thing for 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 Web3? Well, thanks, man. Appreciate the question. Um, you know, look, I I, I certainly uh, don't know all the answers, um, but. What I would say is I think it's probably both in a lot of ways. You, you know, one application certainly is um, the, you know, the membership loyalty models. And, and those are things that really haven't been done well uh, in, in the larger, uh, you know, world of experiences and ticketing, um, you know, little maybe better in sports than in music. But, you know, if you look along the whole spectrum of Broadway and, you know, kind of everything that's ticketed, um, you know, the connection between, um, you know, the, the companies and the consumers is still, you know, not as deep as it could be. And e even from basic level of sort of understanding exactly what the uh, customer journey is and, and the, and what the customers are spending on and kind of, you know, being able to sort of understand on an individual level, the, the contribution and relationship that person has had to, uh, you know, uh, experience in art is still incredibly fragmented. Web3 is not going to solve all of that. I don't think anybody should have illusions that, you know, just because blockchain technology exists that all of a sudden everything's going to be recorded in that sense. There's a lot of structural foundational things that, um, you know, have to evolve uh, and, and mesh in order for that, um, you know, promise of, Hey, I, I now everything I do, I get credit for uh, to, to actually, you know, manifest that th there's a long road to that. But I think Web3 is sort of helping point us more in that direction. And I think that there's some really uh, there's going to be some great evolution of the relationship between uh, producers of all types of entertainment content and live experiences and, and, and the fans that actually provide the fuel for that stuff. Um, and so, you know, we, we were really inspired by that. And, you know, uh, we, we think that, you know, just at the base level of having, you know, membership and connection in a, in a very, you know, sort of verifiable deep way, um, is going to produce, uh, is, is producing some of the short-term, uh, initial, uh, things that you spoke about. And, and I think we'll just see, you know, more and more stuff grow and interesting stuff. It, it's certainly what we're trying to do with super fest and with super is, you know, build, build, use this as a vehicle to build a community of fans again, that we can create awesome stuff with. And I, I don't think that would be happening if we didn't have, uh, you know, blockchain and, and web three technologies. Um, the, the other part of what you asked virtual events and concerts and experiences, uh, you know, look, 
COVID gave that a huge boost because it, it sort of reorientated a little bit of how people look at um, the uh, distribution of uh, entertainment content at large. Um, and, you know, I think where, you know, you mentioned it very specifically where you see the, the, the things that are going to work in the short term. And, and my guess is as well, the long term, the most are things that are connected in some ways to um, activities that are very naturally virtual. So gaming being the sort of hub and the center of all of that. Um, Inherently, gaming is a interactive and uh, very social experience. And so are concerts and events and all you know, IRL entertainment experiences are generally social and they're generally have some level of interaction um, amongst that. And so I think that um, where I can look and where I would encourage others to look is sort of where, you know, uh, a, a, a creative art can be infused on top of that or involved in that already you know, existing, um, you know, model of how people interact online. I I think when you try and sort of shift out of that, it it becomes very difficult. I I have have learned that a bit through a company that I'm involved with called Fly Machine, where we we built some very interesting live stream technology um, because we thought a lot of the stuff that was out there uh, for for, uh, live stream concerts the technology was was uh, dated, and so we built a very modern product. But one of the challenges we uh, found is that you know, kind of getting people who regularly go to concerts to sort of think about watching concerts at home is a, is kind of an unnatural proposition. Whereas another company I'm involved with called Wave, which is a you know virtual kind of avatar based. Uh, concert business, you know, they're seeing a decent amount of success in the space because, you know, they're, they're, they're coming from this gaming background and they're sort of designing things in a way that fit with gamer modalities, um, e- even on, on some of the monetization side of it. Um, really kind of, you know, thinking about, okay, this is how people interact on Twitch. This is how people interact in Fortnite. How can we manifest more of that? How can we create an opportunity for artists to use these tools that exist um, in virtual and game environments to create art that is, um, you know, new and, and more profound because of that, um, and more, more connected to, you know, that natural activity. So that, that's generally how I would think about it. And, uh, I, I think it's incredibly exciting. I mean, I, I will say that, like, I think the opportunity for artists and for artistic producers like our, ourselves to to reach more and more people and to create new forms of art and new forms of collaboration and um, you know n- new ways of, of, of storytelling and and uh, you know connection around that um, I, I think it's incredibly um, you know interesting I, w- one last point I just want to make you know I think it's an interesting part of you know the the nft community stuff and you know josh i saw you posted something the other day about you know, sort of the the how people are 
thinking about PFPs or what it will be in the future. And I, and I may be stating the obvious for everybody here, but you know what, what seems so clear to me is this is, again, an extension of, of sort of gaming mindset. It, it's um, about avatarization. It's about the ability online to transform your persona and your being in ways that, um, you know, allow you to sort of, uh, you know, again, transcend your, your just, you know, normal world environment of, hey, I'm Rick and I look like this. All of a sudden I can be some moniker with some, uh, you know, visual identity of myself that I get to choose. And I, I, I think that aspect of things is here to stay for a long time because I think it's already been here for a long time in the gaming universe and people are exporting it now in all sorts of different ways. And um, I think it's really cool as we're building super fast in that community, one of our next part of our journey is to kind of build more story, to build more of a universe into that, to, to build, uh, you know, uh, potentially kind of an identity system around what your membership in a community is like. And what's kind of cool and, and again, very feels very natural about it is if you come on any of our spaces or join our discord or any of our community forums, people already have their identities. I see some of our, our friends here in the audience today and I know who they are because I know what their visual identity is. I know what their, their username moniker is. And I, I have an image of that person. Person that might be completely different than who they are in real life and in a physical form. And the, the fact that sort of that is the modality that is existing in Web3 communities is to be able to create that identity. It goes right to the heart, actually, of one of the most awesome things in live experiences, which is costuming. You know, when you put on a costume, you transform yourself. Why is it, I, for any of you who haven't done it recently, I recommend it. Like you get to actually inhabit another physical being. And, you know, it, it, it's such a freeing experience. And it, it, that, that kind of transformation of, of self and being able to sort of, you know, uh, expouse yourself in a new way and in, in ways that are less inhibited and all that kind of stuff. I, I think these are really fundamental aspects of where we're going to see, um, you know, it, both IRL and digital experiences, it's already happening, it's been happening. And I think directionally, we're just going to see really, really cool creative stuff and really successful businesses built on that, that foundational element. Rick, that, that's amazing. I, I know that we only have an hour of your time. I want to be respectful of that. I also want to thank you. I feel like I've personally learned a lot just listening to what you have to say. And I will give you an opportunity to close out the space uh, with any closing message that you might have. Well, um, Josh and I have talked about this a little bit. And uh, it, it's just the, the last piece I, I want to just say, because it's something that's really profound for me. Um, and I think everybody in any space, but particularly in, in the space here where people are, are grinding really hard and are living these digital lives um, should, should really be thinking about is, is your mental health. And um, I was very fortunate that when I was in my um, mid to late 20s, I was able to get connected with a particular type of meditation that I've been doing now um, for a few decades. It's a, a huge 
part of uh, my life. Um, it really uh, helps me manage all aspects of, of uh, my life. And, um, you know, often in our society, we, we think about these things very much as a thing we've got to respond to if we're having issues. Um, you know, the, the, the sort of Western medical sense of like, you know, treating the symptom kind of thing. And, you know, I, I think more and more people fortunately are becoming aware of, of, you know, different mental health techniques and the need to be, um, you know, uh, proactive about it. And um, I, I just highly recommend anybody who, particularly those who are looking to get into the entrepreneurial journey, um, find that thing that allows you to really train your mind to create as much uh, stability of mind, uh, as much uh, equanimity, as much um, compassion uh, and uh, empathy and joy, ultimately. Um, you know, I, that, that to me is sort of an essential ingredient in, um, you know, living a, a, a healthy, productive life and, and certainly one that is, you know, included in the entrepreneurial journey. And so, um, you know, find something that you, you really can do on a regular basis, you know, don't do it reactively, do it proactively. And, uh, you know, whatever time you dedicate to that will, will, will not be time lost. It'll be time gained and then some. So, uh, just wanted to put that out there, um, because I, I was very fortunate to, uh, have some people inspire me in that regard and, uh, you know, looking to push that forward. Rick, thank you so much. Uh, privately, I'm going to reach out to you about the meditation. I do want to personally learn more about that, but publicly, just want to say thank you again. I know that everyone's most valuable resource is always our time. So I really appreciate you breaking out an hour to spend with everyone here to educate and have everyone learn. And uh, we're going to close it out on that. Thank you so much. Yeah, great stuff. Thanks, everybody.